Hey, before we begin, I just want to make another emphasis on that idea of baptism. So for about 400 years during the early stages of the Christian church, the only time that they would do baptisms was on Easter morning. And so people had to wait a full year. And here's why. is because they closely associated this idea of Jesus being resurrected with human beings being resurrected, spiritually renewed. And so Easter was always the time that people were baptized. So it's coming up here in just a few weeks. If you haven't been baptized or um, some of us have stories where we think it's been a little bit of a crazy story. I mean, might need to redo this. Hey, that's quite all right as well. Go to the Welcome Center, get signed up. It's going to be a big celebration. There wouldn't be a better time to be baptized. So a couple of weeks ago, we started looking at the book of 1 Peter, only the first chapter. So it's just a one chapter. And here was a little bit of the context. Peter is writing it. Peter's the leader of the Christian church. This is the very Peter that walked with Jesus, uh, stepped out of the boat to walk with him on the water. This is the Peter who pulls out a sword to try to defend Jesus. Uh, this is Peter who's this, this forward-thinking, um, action-oriented human. Now he's in Rome. He's moved all the way from Jerusalem, where he was, all the way to Rome, and he's imprisoned. He's writing this letter from prison, and he's writing it to a group of people that he has actually never met, but he has a deep passion for them. And they're people that live in what we call today Turkey. Turkey. Back then in the first century, they called it, called it Asia Minor. And he addresses them, and he writes because he's heard that they're experiencing some renewed tension. So the first 30 years after Jesus came to the planet and taught, of course, Rome thought they extinguished this kind of rebellious rabbi as they viewed him, but his teachings and his followers multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. And now they're in Rome, they're in North Africa, they're throughout Israel, they're throughout Turkey. These, there's these churches popping up everywhere. And up until this point, Rome had considered Christianity a religio licita, which meant a legitimized religion. So Rome typically let people worship whoever they wanted to worship as long as they would bow their knee to the emperor, to the Caesar. However, there's somebody new who's in power. His name is Nero. And Nero uh, is having major political problems. And because of the burning in Rome, it starts on July 19th. He decides that he needs a scapegoat. And so he points his finger at the Christian church that they are actually instigators, that they're actually trying to uh, destroy the Roman government. And so he then pours his vehemence against them. And this letter is written right about 63 AD. In 64 AD, Peter is going to be tried and killed. He'll be executed by Nero. He'll be crucified upside down from a cross. And so now across the Roman Empire, there's this growing tension. They had always been a legitimized religion. They had always been left alone. They had experienced tremendous growth. But now they're experiencing for the first time economic difficulties because of who they believe in. Some people aren't willing to do business with them anymore because they don't worship Zeus, the primary Roman god. They're experiencing financial difficulties. They're experiencing family difficulties. There are family members who are, at first they thought, well, you seem so excited about this Jesus, whatever, it doesn't seem to be hurting anyone. 
But now that it's against Roman uh, philosophy, people are saying, how could you do this? How could you, how could you soil our family name? How could you start worshiping this Jesus? Who is he? Come back to the ancient Greek and Roman gods we've always worshiped. So there's a growing tension. And here's what, here's what Peter knows. He's experienced the wrath of Nero. And he has an idea of where all this is going to go. And sure enough, in 64 AD, after he kills Peter, he will begin to round up Christians and he will, for entertainment purposes, he will execute entire families, men, women, and children, and feed them to be devoured by his wild beast that he keeps. So Peter writes to help them navigate what's coming. There's a storm coming. And it's interesting what he writes. Just the first chapter, he's going to emphasize this idea of joy over and over. <laughs> and you might think, is Peter in denial? Okay, joy, that's probably the last thing that we're going to feel when there's cultural tensions, when these things like persecution begin to emerge. But Peter is going to equip them. That's the purpose of this letter, especially the first chapter. Equip them for the tensions that are just around the corner and that are already emerging in the areas where they live. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this. Just the first three verses. Peter says this. I want you to remember something. You are elect exiles. He gives them this brand new um, this, this phrase nobody's ever used before. You're elect, meaning you're chosen. You don't have to worry if God loves you. His love is complete. He can let, never love human beings more than he does right now. You're chosen by him. You're secure in him. But then he adds that other word, exiles. Meaning, this world isn't your home. And there will always be a bit of awkwardness as you follow the teachings of Jesus. Sometimes those teachings will collide with cultural norms. And it's going to be awkward. So remember you're chosen. Remember you're loved. But also remember that this world is not your home. You're an exile. You're a nomad. You're living for a world that has yet to arrive. So let's pick it up in verse 3. Verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Let's see what else Peter says to them as they prepare to face this change within their society. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new births into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That the gift that God gave us, spiritual death, was what plagued humanity. We have been resurrected because of him. When you turn to him, God no longer sees your failure or your sin or your shame. He instead sees that Jesus paid the price for every mistake we've ever paid. And now we are spiritually made new, reborn, resurrected. I now have a capacity to relate to God once again. And he says, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Now what we're going to do is we're just going to read a few verses at a time as we go through verse 3 through 12 because they're so loaded. So here's what he gets to. He says, so you've been reborn. Now here's the, here's the second thing I need you to know. You have an inheritance. You have an inheritance. Now who in the room hasn't dreamed of having an inheritance? That you get that phone call. That Hey, did you know that you had an uncle so-and-so and... -so and 
he just died and he didn't have any family members. And so you are the recipients of, anybody got that email? That you're like a descendant of a princess of Ethiopia or something. And you now stand to inherit $20 million. All you need to do is enter your debit card numbers in the box below. I mean, everybody, right, would say, whoa, to have an inheritance. Most of us don't have that. But an inheritance is peculiar, right, because it's not money that you saved. It's not money that you earned. You didn't work for it. But it's a gift from someone else. So um, when Jenny and I, we were, we were married early, and when we turned 21, she received a small inheritance from her mother. Her mother had died when she was just 11 years old. And I don't know how her mom did it. She was a single mom, but she had put away money. And her mother had, she'd been sick for a little while and planned and said, I want my daughter to be able to put down a down payment on a home when she's 21. And she was smart. It was for a down payment on a home when she was 21, not a new car when she was 18, right? So it was this humbling moment. It wasn't a large amount at all, but it was enough to put down a down payment on a home. And I had never, ever met Jenny's mother. She died long before I met Jenny. And it was just amazing that Barbara was her name. She somehow planned for her daughter's future and wanted to help her daughter buy a home. It was just enough for a down payment. I just remember being so grateful. I'd never received money that I hadn't worked for or earned. You're just humbled by that. Peter says this. No matter what happens in the business world, no matter how tense things get, as Rome begins to turn against you, there is something that they can never, ever take away from you. It's your inheritance from God. It can't be stripped away. It can't be fined. It can't be decimated by market crashes. And what is this inheritance? I wish I could tell you that the inheritance that Peter is talking about is monetary. I wish I could say, little did you know, when you signed up to follow Jesus, you also signed up for a big whopping inheritance. But it's not a money inheritance. There's some things that money can't buy. Peter says, this is the inheritance you have. You have peace with God. That thing that human beings have been striving for through all time, through all of our religions that we've developed, hoping that one day we could have peace with God. You have freedom from shame. Your, your sin, your debt has been paid for. You're in good standing with God. You have joy. It's not just a joy because you've got everything you want, but this deep, profound sense that all is well with my soul. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about heaven. And so he writes to these listeners and he says, listen, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if Rome's going to steal your businesses. I don't know how bad it's going to get, but I want you to know something. You have an inheritance from God. It is a free gift. You didn't earn it. And it is more precious than money. He actually mentions three things about this inheritance because the idea of inheritance is very, very ancient in the Old Testament, the books written before Jesus. The, the Hebrew people, the Israel, Israelites, they were always told they'd had an inheritance and the inheritance was the land they'd one day live in, Canaan or the promised land. And so they longed for that because they were a nomadic people group. And in Genesis chapter 12, early in the Bible, God finds a man named Abram, later to be Abraham, and says, 
Here's your inheritance. I'm going to give you a land. A land where you don't have to move your tents every day, but it'll be your own. And it'll be this, this beautiful inheritance for you. Well, now Peter says, I've got a new inheritance. But notice what he says about it. He says, here's the nature of your inheritance. It can never perish. Meaning it's impenetrable. It, it, it can't be ravaged by an invading army. So the first inheritance the people of God had, the problem is, is other people found it attractive and would come in and steal it from them. He said, this inheritance that God has for you, it can never perish. It can never spoil. It can't be ruined. It can't be polluted. He says, this inheritance can never fade. can never fade. There's no change. There's no decay. There's no lessening. So Peter looks at these people and says, whatever happens, whatever they take from you, you have a wealth that can't be calculated through human means. You have peace and joy. God has given everything to you. He's emptied heaven when he sent his son to give you everything, absolutely everything. I think in part what, what Peter is doing is asking them to lift their eyes. When things get difficult, I think the tendency in my life and perhaps in yours is to look inwardly and wonder, like, what's going on? Why is this happening to me? Peter says, lift up your eyes. Look at what God has done. Look at the inheritance. He, he's changed everything. He's changed human history. He sent his son so that you could have everything that you would ever need in life. So number one, you have an inheritance. Now, the next verses are going to tell us that we're also shielded. We're also shielded. Let's read verse 5, the very next verse. Who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So he says, okay, you've got this inheritance and you're set aside. And now, through faith, this is how you access the shield by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter says this, okay, there might be controversy all around you. There may be a battle that's being waged. In fact, it may get ugly, but here's, here's the deal. Through faith, when you believe, when you believe, you are shielded. Doesn't mean you're taken out of it. Doesn't mean that everything's peaceful and quiet. But there is a protection, an element of protection that God gives people even when things get a little bit crazy culturally. He'll guard you through faith. And, and it's this moment, he'll walk you through protecting you until salvation is being revealed, coldly revealed. See, when Peter writes about salvation, here's what we tend to do. We, we tend to think either past, present, or future. So if you think of the past, you think of salvation, we just go back to what happened with Jesus on the cross, that he died in our place, took my spot, now I'm clean. Sometimes we think present tense, that I need to be saved from this. What is God doing? And sometimes we think future tense, only like heaven. Peter's saying your salvation is past, present, and future. In the present, what God will do doesn't mean that everything's going to be as calm as imaginable but he will guard you. He will shield you. He will protect things that you can't protect yourself. So you have an inheritance and you are shielded. 
Verse 6, let's read what else we're told we have. Verse 6, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, so these trials have come. He's given them perspective on how are you going to face this opposition. So that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So he's saying this. You're going to go through some challenges. There's a reason for it. And in the end, in the end, if you can thrive through this, it will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So Jesus will be glorified, but also seems to say, it's an opportunity for Jesus to say, well done, well done. Peter's going to hit on this idea that my pain is not permanent. My pain is not permanent. They're about ready to face one of the more trying things that any generation of Christians have ever faced. They're going to face execution. They're going to face imprisonment. They're going to face the separation of families. And Peter's going to give them a perspective on pain. He says, listen, it's not permanent. When you're hurting, it feels like forever, doesn't it? How many of us have had that dark night of the soul when you think, I, I can't do this forever? Will this ever end? Is there ever hope? Is there ever going to be a way out? And Peter tells them, listen, your pain is not permanent. In fact, your pain always has potential. It has potential. God is not a God who will waste your pain. I don't think God wanted the Roman Empire to turn against Christianity. This is not his doing. But he allows such freedom. And now that Nero is going to turn his wrath against the Christians, God's going to say this. It's going to be difficult, but here's the deal. Your pain isn't permanent and there's potential in it. In fact, God will never waste pain in your life and in my life if I cooperate with him. So he brings to mind this whole idea of gold being refined. So imagine finding gold. You find gold in ore or you can find it in flake form. What needs to happen? Well, if it's in ore form, it needs to be crushed. It needs to allow the chemicals to release the gold. Once you have gold, it then needs to be heated up to 2,100 degrees, which is hot. But at 2,100 degrees, what happens to gold is that the dross or the impurities begin to come to the surface. The Bible talks about this over and over as a way that God works with us through our pain. At 2,100 degrees, when the impurities come to the surface, they're scooped off the top and put to the side. And then the gold would be agitated once again, heated to 2,100 degrees. And more of that dross, those impurities, would rise to the surface and be put to the side. It's called refining. Refining. Peter brings this whole idea into this passage. Says, you may be going through some trials right now, but your pain has potential. If you allow God, he won't waste your pain. He doesn't want this to happen, but he will capitalize on what's happening. Through the pain, through the heat, through the pressure, through the intensity, what's unlike God rises to the surface and let him move it. Let him take it away so that in the end, you will be 
as much like him as possible. I wish that I changed when life was easy. I wish that I was so responsive to God that when things were really good, I, I was sensitive to him and I, I, I got rid of certain things in my life. Here's what I look at though. Over the last almost 46 years, the times when I've really grown are the times when I've been most uncomfortable. When the heat's been on. Because it's then that the impurities rise to the surface and God never wastes that pain. He takes it. And he says, let's get rid of that. Let's refine you through this difficulty. And so as bizarre as it seems, we're a culture that is pain averse, right? Anybody, if, if you like pain, we diagnose you with something. Like that's unhealthy. We, we, can, we can get rid of our headaches. We can get rid of almost every difficulty. We're pain averse, but pain is an inevitable part of life. And Peter is saying this. The pain has potential. God won't waste it. Don't believe the lie in the midst of pain. This is the lie that we all gravitate towards. God must not care. He must not be good. He must not be kind or I wouldn't be going through this. I'm a good person. Why is this happening to me? Peter says, listen, he's working in your life. He never promised that everything would be easy. But he did promise to continually be present and help you become more like him through the process. So see God in your hardship. He's begging them. See God in the midst of your hardship. See that there's potential in your pain. See that your pain is never permanent. He has an end solution to all of it. So he says, remember your inheritance. Remember you're shielded. He, he brings them into this idea of remaining, remembering your pain is not permanent, that God is doing something. And then fourthly, he's going to say uh, something about the necessity of faith. Let's read verses 8 and 9, the ones that directly follow. Verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter's going to compare his life to theirs. So 30 years before Peter writes this, he had seen Jesus. He had walked with Jesus. He had talked with Jesus. He had seen Jesus do miracles. He had heard those words audibly, visually. He has experienced this. And he's writing to people who are now a generation removed and who live hundreds of miles away. And he says this, you've never seen him. Peter had the opportunity to see him, but you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you still believe in him. And because of this belief, this step of faith, you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You can't verify God, but you can verify what he's doing within you. It's all about the necessity of faith. Faith is a huge step. It's so important. And Peter commends them. I was talking with a young man this week. It was a great conversation. He really made me think about some things. And here was his big, his big challenge having to do with God. He said, I don't feel God. I don't feel him. I ask. I, I, I want to feel him, but I, I don't feel him. 
And it made me think a little bit about how often I actually feel God. And I realized I don't feel God a lot. And as I was just reviewing the New Testament and the Bible, like how often do people feel him? There were times, but what we read often is believing or trusting or faith or surrender to him. And so as I was talking to this young man, I said, what if the goal isn't for you to feel him so then you'll believe him? Once I have an emotional experience, then I'll be able to trust him. What if it first requires me to trust him? What if that's the first step? So imagine the end of this stage is, is faith. Sometimes we want to feel something like, God, make me feel secure. Verify yourself. Anybody ever had those prayers? Like, God, it's okay. We can be honest. God, I need you to prove yourself. If you're real, I need you to do what? Fix my car. That dead plant in the corner needs to be alive in the morning when I wake up. Come on, anybody? See, I, I grew up, I was born in 71. And so the force from Star Wars and faith, I kind of got all mixed up. They were just... They were mixed up. And so I would spend hours in my bedroom after watching Star Wars trying to, you know, because I watched, I watched that Luke was able to bring his fighter out of the swamp. And so I would sit there and I'd be like, God, if you're real, just make that pencil move. And I'd be like, you know, like till the veins were popping in my head, opening my eye, wondering, did the pencil move? God, show me you're real. You know, do this, make my brother nicer. I wanted God to verify himself. And if he verifies himself, then I'll believe. I think what Peter's saying is you've believed him. You never saw him. And you love him. And you've come to the edge of faith. And you just stepped off. You surrendered to him. You gave him your life. You love him. You said, we trust you even though we can't prove you, even though we can't verify you. I, I love that it's a reasonable faith, but I've come to the conclusion I have. Anybody in the room have questions about God and questions about faith? Anybody have doubts? Ooh, you're making me feel super insecure. You were like, yep, I do. Okay, me and three other people. Yeah, there we go. Hand up, proud. I think... I'll never have all of my doubts addressed this side of eternity. There will continually be things that I wonder about. I, I, sat, with a, oh, I sat with a family this week that lost their six-year-old baby. And there are, there are doubts and I have questions and why? And what do I do? Do I, do I run back and say, God, you need to answer all my questions? Or is it still, I trust you? I trust you, I don't understand, but I step off in faith like these people who lived in Turkey do. It reminds me of Thomas. Thomas, he's one of the original 12 apostles who walks with Jesus. There's 11 remaining. And Thomas is just a master of bad timing because he's out when the other 10 remain and Jesus shows up and there've been all these stories that he's alive and now they know he's really alive. They see him in the flesh and you can imagine, I mean, what they're experiencing. So Thomas like walks in the room and everybody's just like, uh, he's like, what did I miss? What did I miss? And they go, uh, Jesus was just here. 
Like he's really alive. Those ladies said he's alive. He's, he's really alive. And Thomas looks at them and says, I don't believe you guys. There's no way. There's no way. I won't believe that unless I can actually put my fingers in the nail holes that held him to the cross and touch the side where, where the spear pierced him. Like, I need physical proof. It needs to be verified for me. He's got 10 of his best friends saying, Thomas, seriously, you should believe this. And he's like, no, 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 I need physical proof. So what happens? A few days later, Jesus shows up. This time, Thomas is in the room. And Jesus is like, Thomas, I heard you. He's like, you want to go ahead? You want to touch the holes? Thomas is like, no, sir. I'm fine. Fine, I believe. And Jesus makes this interesting statement. He looks at everybody in the room. He says, you're blessed because you see and you believe. But there will, become, there will come people after you who won't see and yet they will believe. That's us. That's the people who are going to read the letter of 1 Peter. Is there is a faith that is so important where I, I can't verify everything about God, but I sense his inexpressible joy within me. I sense that this is the story that changes the world. I sense that this is the truth that shapes my life and my heart, the necessity of faith. So we talk about an inheritance. We talk about being shielded. We talk about the purpose of pain in our lives. He talks about the necessity of faith. And then lastly, in verses 10 through 12, he's going to give them this lofty view of life, this lofty view of God. Let's read 10 through 12. Now, concerning this salvation, the prophets, prophets were people in the Old Testament, the, the books written before the arrival of Jesus. These were men and women who heard God in a unique way. Men like Elijah, uh, Ezekiel, and then they spoke to the people. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come, meaning future tense, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah. So this word Messiah is an ancient Hebrew concept that means the anointed one or the promised one, one who would come and heal this rift between God and humanity. They've been waiting for someone to deliver them, waiting for some of them to heal them. But it was confusing that there were all these messages of suffering and Messiah because they expected a king. They expected somebody who could overcome Rome and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them, to the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel, the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Look at this line. Even angels long to look into these things. This, this word long, they envy to experience the salvation that's happening. Now, what in the world is Peter talking about here? Peter's going to give them this lofty view of salvation, this lofty view of what God is doing. He says, the prophets, they longed for a time. There was this separation between them and God. And they hoped that one day this, this healing would happen, this Messiah would come, and human beings could be fully restored and become alive again. And they looked forward to it, and they spoke about it. And they tried to figure out the who, the what, and the when. And they were trying to put it all together. But they never personally experienced it. They were talking about the era that we now live in. 
this era where Jesus has come and paid the debt and we are now alive. This is the story of what God is doing. The story of salvation and what was happening in Turkey, what is happening in Montana, the lives of the people in this room who have experienced hope and restoration. Oh yeah, maybe there's gonna be some persecution. Maybe there's gonna be some conflict, but there's an inheritance that we have that is so beautiful, nothing compares to it. Peter says, the angels, the angels in heaven long to look into it, long to experience it. The profound nature of God's love. They don't get to experience it like you experience it. This is something that is so beautiful. The world has been longing for it since the beginning of time. It's God who loves humanity. Now, I have a question for you. If you or I were going to write a letter to a group of people who were going to go through persecution, what would you write in that letter? I think I would write a letter like to prepare them. Here's 10 steps to surviving Nero. Number one, bury your gold, right? Number two, store up some food. Number three, sharpen your sword. Number four, you know, like we want to help you survive this. This is scary. He cares about these people. Why in the world does Peter write this book? And he introduces it, preparing them for the worst that's to come. And all he can talk about is that they're elect and that they're chosen and that they're reborn and that they have an inheritance and that they're shielded and that God is going to work through their pain and that they are loved and they're chosen. Why does he just keep lifting up this idea of who God is and what he's doing and telling them their love? Here's why. Because Peter knew something. Peter knew that in order for them to survive and thrive, they needed a vision. A vision of what God was doing. It was so extraordinary. A vision of who they were in him. Because if I understand that, if I understand what God is doing in this world, guess what? Whatever comes at me, it doesn't really matter. Let me give you an example. I am, I'm, I'm a terrible musician. But say I wanted to inspire you to become a, a maestro, a master at the violin. What if I started off, I, I said we need more violinists around here. What if I started off by showing you this chart and saying, look at this. Look at, look at all these notes. I want to inspire you to learn the violin. Look at all those black dots. There's so many. And somehow they make sense. Like, please, people, be inspired. Who's inspired? Inspired. Nobody, nobody, right? You are. Okay, okay. All right, three of you. However, however, what, this is the same piece just actually played. Tell me which one inspires you more. Nathan Milstein. I hear that and I'm moved. 
What moves a, a child to put in the tens of thousands of hours to become proficient enough to play like that? It's not the chart. It's the music. I think that's exactly what Peter is doing here. He's saying, no matter how hard life gets, it's not about the steps. It's not about how to survive. It's about who God is and who you are in him. And once you understand that, you have a vision to get through whatever comes your way. Will you pray with me? Jesus, 2,000 years ago, you reminded a group of people who are on the cusp of some very difficult times who they were. You reminded them that they were elect. They were exiles. Yeah, this world wasn't their home, but they were chosen by you. You reminded them that they had an inheritance, that there was something in life that was much more precious than money, than gold, than silver. You reminded them that they were shielded, that you protected them. You reminded them that their faith was important and that their pain had a purpose. And you reminded them that the story of Jesus is life-changing. It makes sense of the world. And because of that, because of this perspective that they gained, they survived the next five years that were filled with intense difficulties. Why? Because they were inspired by you. They knew who they were and they knew who you are. God, for all of us in the room, would we have this lofty view of God? this renewed view of who we are in you. If you keep your eyes closed for just a moment, if you're here and this would be that moment for you to believe. Remember how we talked about faith and it's never verified and we never have enough motions, but it's that moment when I say, I surrender to this God that I cannot verify, but I see him moving. And I hear the story of what he's done. And I need spiritual rebirth. If that's you, you need to make that step. Would you just boldly raise your hand and wave at me? Say, Nate, that's me. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You're made new. Anybody else? Catch my eye, would you please? Okay, in the very back. Yes, sir. You're a son. You're forgiven. You're made new. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, right over here. You're made new. Okay, yeah, you're his daughter. Know that. You have a brand new start. Yes, ma'am. It's a new day for you. Yes, sir. I see your hand back there. Yes, sir, over here. Anybody in the balcony? Yeah, I see your hand. Absolutely. Yeah, yes, sir. You're made new. Yes, and yes, over here. Okay, all four of you right there. Beautiful. Yes. Okay, in the very back, I see your hand. Okay, right here as well, down on the floor. Yeah. Wow. For everyone who raised their hand, yeah. Okay. You raise your hand. Please know this. You're a part of this new story, okay? You're made new, and it's beautiful. Everybody, would you just celebrate those who raised their hands? Thank you. It's a big, big step. Good, good, good.
So if you did raise your hand, please go out to the Welcome Center. I've got a little booklet for you and a Bible if you need one of those to help you get growing and uh, moving towards baptism even. Everybody else, listen, be the hands and feet of Jesus. Let him do something extraordinary through you. He loves us more than we could ever imagine. If you need prayer for anything, there's people up front you can trust.